back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and this is the Flanders episode. Flanders Ronde van Vlaanderen happened over the weekend. It's Monday, April 5th, as we're recording this. And we have the usual crew with us here today. Dane Cash, how are you today? Doing good. Had a good weekend of racing. Lots of good stuff to watch. Tons of good stuff to watch. Shadi Dave, I believe you've, uh, you've changed locations on us again. I have. I won't go into the story, but yeah, I've just spent two days driving across country to uh, to hole up in another place where there's a big garden and a beach when we've got this new lockdown going on here in France. So don't spoil any racing for me because I've not watched any racing this weekend yet. So don't don't have <laughs> warn, don't give me all these spoiler warnings, please, before you tell us what happens. Yeah, we just we just won't mention Flanders just to prevent you from being spoiled. Beautiful people actually. Sometimes people email me about this where they're like angry that we spoiled a bike race like on the internet. Sometimes I, I, I fun all the time. I don't really understand. Like we're a news outlet. I don't know what you want us to do with not posting things on the internet, which is literally our entire reason to be. <laughs> anyway, Abby Mickey, your yes. shirt says machines. It is. is that machines for machines freedom? For freedom. Yes. It's a great brand. I'm Excellent. a fan. I love that brand. And James, looks like you did some remodeling over the weekend. Oh yes, yes, I did. I did some. I did some virtual remodeling. It was very handy. <laughs> it was much, much cheaper and much faster than doing actual remodeling. I, I very much like the the postmodern vibe you've got going on over there. Mm-hmm. Let's get into today's episode. As I said, it's going to be the Flanders episode. We've got tons to talk about. We're going to talk about the bike racing. We're talking about the illegality of throwing bottles. We're going to talk about clinchers being used at the Tour of Flanders successfully. Uh, that'll be today's nerd nugget at the end of the episode. But before we get into any of that, Shoddy Dave, what are we learning about Continental today? Here we go. This is the only bit I'm going to be speaking about and knowing about this week on this week's podcast. So sit comfortably. Right. As Continental's newest tie, I thought we could learn a little bit more about the Reuben and E-Reuben. Update, there is still no sausage roll edition of these tyres yet. We're still waiting on them. The E-Reuben is a clincher tyre, while the Reuben is a clincher or tubeless ready tyre. They are slightly different in size and weight, with the E-Reuben coming in a little bit heavier than the non-E counterpart. The last time I spoke about Continental's new tyres, I mentioned that they have a reflective sidewall. They also feature a pure grip compound. The advanced technology is based on additive... <coughs> sorry. The advanced technology is based on... Uh, oh, sorry. I'm not... I'm, I shouldn't have started this beer before we started recording, really. <laughs> and and, and dear God, Shadi, it's Continental. How many times do we have to talk to you about this? We're, it's April now. We're like three months into this. That, that plus I'm the closest to Germany, ain't I? So I should, I should have some sort of um, accent going on. Right, let me start that one again. The advanced technology is based on activated silica compounds. It was originally developed as a pure performance compound, but during development, it became a rubber mix with outstanding grip and endurance properties. The Pure Grip compound ranks just behind Black Chili compound I spoke about uh, prior in one of the other podcasts, which is, I think, their racing, racing compound. Uh, the Pure Grip is long-lasting and highly durable, perfect for the types of terrain you would take your E-Reuben on, or even your Reuben tyre on. Right, as always, thank you to Continental, Continental, Con- Conti, Continental, for supporting this episode and well every episode this year five stars shoddy yeah superb work i've re- I, I never drink beer and i never drive much not in that order i've just drove two days <laughs> i've just drove two t- two days worth of driving got here and my um father-in-law's thrown a, a beverage in my hand and you don't say no to your father-in-law <clears throat> even if i only ever drink maybe three times a year so things could go pear-shaped, much like that advert. <laughs> I'm here for it. I think, I think our listeners are probably here for it as well. All right, let's get into Flanders. It's kind of the whole episode today, for obvious reasons. Uh, one of the best races of the year. Why don't we just sort of drop into the talking points first? Maybe we'll kick off with 
the women's race. We'll go reverse chronological order. Abby, talk me through it. Yeah, it was a pretty aggressive race. There was break after break after break that all got brought back. Nothing was successful until Audrey Cordon Rigaud went on one of the final climbs, the Tienberg. The Boonenberg. The what? Never mind. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Did it used to have a different name? No, it's it's uh, oh, in the, particular the is known Boonen for thing. Tom Boonen right. doing Tom Boonen Before stuff my time, sorry. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, what? Hold on. Yeah. Tom Boonen's before your time? Apparently we're old, Shadi. Oh, it's unrelated. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Audrey Cordon Margot went on the Tom Boonen climb and she got a pretty good gap. She was off the front for a, for a while. She was finally brought back at the base of the Ode de Quermont which is where the real race really kicked off. A group of riders that, I mean, you wouldn't be surprised by any of the names that ended up in it. Um, Anna van der Breggen, Grace Brown, Cecile Utrecht-Ludwig, Annemiek van Vluten, Elisa Longa-Borghini, Lisa Brenauer, Demi Vollering, Voss and Niwodoma actually got dropped on that climb. So Voss really struggling as the race started to pick up speed. Over the Paderberg, Van Vluten didn't really attack. She kind of just like increased her pace and dropped everybody. And then it was really touch and go for a while. It looked like it was going to come really, really close. The group behind her, which was a group of seven really strong riders, they weren't quite cooperating with each other. They had moments where they were and moments where they weren't. And Van Vluten just rode her pace. So the gap was hovering around 10, 11 seconds until she got a, within about 2K to go and her gap just blew out to like 27 seconds and she won the race. Lisa Brenauer sprinted to second, which is a huge result for her. And Grace Brown was third. Another really incredible result. I think that this, um, I saw some chatter before Flanders this year about the, the finale, specifically the quite long distance between the top of the Paderberg and the finish line and how it makes for in these people's uh, estimation a less interesting finish than it could be otherwise what do we think about this because i feel like you know van vluten is sort of attacking over the top of the paderberg and, and staying away from that point and behind her a group of riders who didn't really want to work together and so there wasn't there wasn't a ton of suspense i feel like at that point and there, there was a chance that she would get caught but i think most would probably say okay that's van vluten the group behind is not really working that well together. She's probably got this. And you sort of know she's got this for a long time before the finish line. You know, if if there was another cobble sector between the Paderberg and the finish, that could totally change the dynamic. And kind of kind of what I'm thinking of here is like the old Muir, uh, Muir, Muir van Gerdsbergen and then Balsberg finish, I think w was a good model because the Muir was always where the strongest rider would go, right? So that's the equivalent of the Paderberg right now. And then the Bosberg was just enough to kind of reshuffle about what 8K later, something like that. Uh, it feels like after the Paderberg, if you're solo, it, it, most of the time you end up taking the victory. What do we think about the finish of Flanders right now? It's kind of a big question, I realize. I think it really just came down to the composition at the end there. I, I, I like the finish right now. I think usually if you have a decent group behind, there is a lot more suspense. The problem was that there weren't enough teammates for the big names. It was all... It was all the top contenders with not a whole lot of support, and that meant that nobody wanted to work together, and Van Vloyt was just way up the road. But I think most of the time you see some suspense about whether or not somebody's going to get brought back. And I don't know that we would... I think if you put a climb later, you would just get more waiting uh, to, to make that final attack. So I want more evidence. I want to see more, uh, more finishes with you know, just different compositions there before making a real final decision on whether it's that boring the way it is. I wouldn't say it was boring, and I don't think I personally don't think there's anything really wrong with the current one, just like you, Dane. But but I do, like I said, the, I think that the Muir Bosberg is an interesting kind of model because the Bosberg is not anywhere near as hard as something like the Paderberg or the Quarmont or the Muir. It's sort of this long drag that you hit, you know, in the big ring, and you think you can get all all the way up and over, and it turns out two thirds of the way up, you probably can't. Gets steeper and steeper and steeper, but never gets really really nasty, and is not you know, super narrow or anything like that. So it's sort of like a, you know, it's like a two or three star sector. And I think that's, that's maybe what the race could use in that final segment is like not another major climb that riders are going to wait for like the Paderberg or the Claremont, but just something that, you know, if you've been out solo for a while, 
is going to maybe break your legs a bit more than somebody who's who's been in a group behind. You know, if there had been a Bosberg at seven, eight, nine K to go yesterday, I think it was very likely that, you know, I don't know, and a Vanderbregen or somebody would have bridged up to Van Vluten using that as a launch point. So I think it'd be an interesting experiment. I wonder whether Flanders Classics will will mess with the Flanders course in the coming years because um, the finale anyway has been very consistent since they since they made that big alteration in what was it like 2011 or 2012 or something like that. Uh, and I, I would kind of like to see, you know, an easier cobble section in that final 15K. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. I, I personally used to like the old finish. I suppose more for the atmosphere at the end of the race rather than how it panned out because it, it did also pan out really well as well, but it did used to have a bit more spectator atmosphere when you're on the ground. Now it just feels like it's finishing on the middle of a dual carriageway where the part, if you're there, which it is, which it is, yeah, <laughs> which is, and it feels like the part is where all the team buses are. Like I'd love to see it finishing the, the town center rather than out on the, out on the sticks, but that's another talking point entirely. No, I, I would agree with that. I mean, this is getting kind of inside baseball here, but for anybody who's been to the to the finish of the Tour of Flanders, yeah, so basically, so everyone has an idea of what the distance is. It's, it's outside town. It's a fair ways outside town, and it would be super cool if it finished at the square in Udnard, which is, which is yeah, where, where, like Shadi said, where the party is. Uh, and I'm kind of surprised that, that Flanders Classics hasn't done that. Uh, I mean, they, they seem to be quite good at... at you know, building the VIP kind of situations, ways for them to make money, ways to monetize fans, ways to issue tickets. I mean, imagine if to get into the center of the city, you had to have you you had to be ticketed. Uh, I'm not saying that would be necessarily be a good thing for fans, but it would certainly be good, probably be a good thing for Flanders Classics, right? Yeah. Anyway, I, I would like to see it closer to town. I think that'd be I think you're right, Shuddy. That would be cool. And I also want to see something like the Bosberg. Closer to the Fritterias. Yeah, exactly. I mostly just care that if I ever make it back to, to Flanders again, that they just keep the, the caliber of the pre-race press buffet in the press room. Oh, yeah. With like all of the like danishes. The biggest platter yeah. of pastries ever. <laughs> it's true. I had forgotten about that. Oh, man. it's It's been too long since we were in Flanders. Uh, any other talking points, Abby? Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't don't really disagree with you, Kaylee, that I think. I wish there had been something that had kind of evened out the, or had, had kind of like encouraged the chasing group to work a little bit more to bring Anamik back because there was so much looking at each other in that group that, and as soon as Elisa Longaborghini wasn't doing anything, the, the desire to work really dropped out of that group and you could, you could really see it. And it was really just like, Demi Bollering and Cecile Utrecht-Ludwig, who were really working hard. And then we saw in the sprint that Marta Cavalli wasn't, wasn't really contending with Lisa Brenauer in the sprint either. So that was really interesting coming into the finish. One other talking point around the race doesn't really have to do with the race itself. But before the race began, Flanders Classics announced, or didn't announce, but requested that Mark Braca who was found guilty of a violation of the code of ethics in October after proceedings opened up, I think in, in March of last year or April, Flanders classics requested that he not be present at the race. So they don't have any ability to keep him from the race. And until the UCI's disciplinary disciplinary commission actually suspends him or makes some kind of decision, no one has any power to remove him except probably his team but they're clearly not going to do that because it's <laughs> been a while at this point. Um, and, but yeah, the, the race really stepped in and said, look, you're not, you're not welcome at any of our events. Their second DS stepped in to direct the women for Flanders, which I mean, it's just an ongoing thing that uh, I hate. <laughs> we have to, that I have to bring up and mention, but I do think it's relevant to keep a fire under the UCI's ass to, you know, do something. Yeah. I mean, you know, if the UCI isn't going to do anything, then individual race organizers, well, I think, you know, Flanders did the right thing, right? And they, they, a race organizer has a fair amount of leeway in terms of, and power in terms of who they, they will invite and not invite to these events because they can refuse to issue credentials to almost anybody. 
and that that can essentially be what he, they did there. You know, you can't you can't be in a team car if you're not credentialed. You can't even be in a lot of the sort of start and finish zones if you're not credentialed for these races. And so, you know, Flanders can just say, well, you know, we're not going to give you a credential because we think you shouldn't be here. And they don't really there's not a lot of rules and regulations around the ability to do that or not do that. Right. Uh, they they have a fair amount of of freedom to choose who they want at their events and who they do not want at their events. So kudos to them. I think that's a great way to approach it and maybe more organizers would do it. And then at some point, you know, the team is forced to make a decision that they have been avoiding making for quite some time or the UCI, like you said, gets a little fire lit under their ass and sees that there's support out there. Abby, anything else we should switch into here? Um, so one thing that's really interesting about Anamiek Van Vluten's win and someone who has been around the sport a little longer can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that is the first win for Movistar men's and women's team in a cobbled classic. Oh, maybe actually. Definitely. They have not historically. Yeah. They, they have not historically been an amazing co- cobbled team. Uh, I, I can't think, think of Movistar. Bernesto, Il Belez, uh the multiple iterations of them, they've never done anything, that team. They've always just turned up for, well, because they've had to. In fact, I remember seeing right. <laughs> on several occasions a team van from uh, that setup parked, oh, I'm trying to think of the spot, probably about halfway through the race, and that Roubaix as well, just waiting for riders to pull out. So they do like half the race, pull out, <laughs> jump in the van. Then they didn't go and get their, their fritz and mayonnaise. I've definitely seen that at Roubaix. Yeah, yeah Roubaix. Just, just the, the entire team pulls out at the second rest or the, is it the first rest zone or um, not rest feed zone. Just yeah, big van there waiting to take everybody home. A lot of bike racks. I can see Dane <laughs> furiously looking looking it up right now. <laughs> we'll we'll do it. How about this? Since we don't, we just think this is true, but we're gonna look it up because we're doing this in real time here. We'll do a corrections corner at the end of the episode if we're wrong. How about that? We've been intending to implement a corrections corner anyway because, you know, we get things wrong on a somewhat regular basis, <laughs> which is the nature of having a chat here and not, you know, always knowing exactly what we're going to be talking about. But yes, we will do a corrections corner if uh, this turns out to be incorrect. Moving on, let's get into the men's race. We had, uh, I think, a pretty, I would give this one, I don't know. Three and a half cobbles out of five for uh, for a rating, I think, this year. Pretty good race. Pretty good race. Uh, great winner. Love Casper Asgreen. Oh, you said uh, there's going to be no spoilers. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry That's ruined it for me. Yeah, we really apologize. Yeah. Uh, you should just skip ahead about, I don't know, 15 minutes here if you, if you don't want any more spoilers. Yeah, great race and some kind of interesting side stories too. We had uh, some disqualifications, two two different sets of disqualifications. Uh, one for chucking a bottle, one for basically like attacking a guy on his bicycle. Um, and like I said, a pretty pretty good race. So Dane, talk me through it. Yeah, the racing. We'll we'll get to the the disqualifications in a little bit. We can talk about those a little bit more in depth. Uh, but in terms of the sort of the racing for the victory, uh, things really started to heat up. Uh, I don't know, inside the last 50k, uh, it was a pretty, a pretty aggressive run-in when they started to hit those, those sort of the succession of the cobbles and climbs that really, they, they come quite quickly once, once, they, get, uh, once they get going. Uh, there were a lot of attacks and regroupings. Uh, you had this kind of small lead group uh, get, kind of getting a little bit clear, and most of the big names that you would have expected to be there were indeed there. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool, Casper Asgreen, and Wout Van Aert kind of got clear of that group uh, on the Kreuzberg. And then you had a, a trio up front and, and some strong chasers behind. And then on the Oda Quermont, Matthew Vanderpool put in a big, big attack that just dropped Van Aert like a stone. Uh, Asgreen, though, was able to... He didn't, he didn't kind of stick with him, but he was able to kind of claw back up there after a few moments of being left behind, and then it was Vanderpool and Asgreen with Van Aert just kind of slowly fading, and he was eventually absorbed by the, by the chase group that included the likes of Greg Van Avermaet and Jasper Stuyven and a couple of other big names, uh, and it was, it was a, a brief few minutes of wondering, are they going to get caught? Uh, are, are, the, are the two up front, Asgreen and Vanderpool, going to get caught? 
but it really it became pretty pretty clear pretty quickly that no they were going to stay away this was a this was a powerful duo and they worked pretty well together after getting clear uh they they, they did a lot of collaborating that wasn't a whole lot of cat and mouse up until basically the very end of the race when they kind of pull onto that finishing straight it's a long finishing straight and i think a I don't know. I would guess that maybe ninety percent of people would have would have favored Vanderpool in that sprint. Uh, coming into the sprint, Vanderpool was leading the way. He led out the sprint, uh, and Asgreen had decided to trust his sprint. He didn't really try much to get away. You would have expected Asgreen to try to get a get a head start or jump away from from Vanderpool because we know Vanderpool is so fast. Uh, but he didn't. He he kind of trusted his sprint, and Vanderpool led out and. Uh, Within the last 400 meters, you just had this constant Vanderpool looking back, looking back, looking back. And then 250 meters to go, they both launched. And for, for a brief moment, it looked like Vanderpool might hold on. But then Asgreen just blew past him and it was tight for a short moment. And then Vanderpool just kind of, he kind of sat up. It was, it was as if he kind of he hit the limit, couldn't go any harder. And he just said, yeah, it's not happening. And in the end, Asgreen actually won pretty convincingly. It wasn't close in the sprint. Asgreen won pretty convincingly. Took his first ever monument win, uh, and I think that was Quicksteps fourth of seven World Tour one days so far they've won uh, this year. Heck of a ride from Asgreen to to stick with Vanderpool when he put in that huge attack on the Claremont, and then uh, to out sprint Vanderpool, which not a whole lot of people expected, was a big big success. Vanderpool defending champ settles for second, and then uh, Greg Van Avermaet out sprinted uh, Jasper Stoyven for third. Good bike race. That sprint was interesting. Uh, it. it- it looked to me like, well, one, Vanderpool was, was wrecked. That was pretty clear. He, he looked pretty bad in the last 10K, and he essentially started sprinting, realized he couldn't really sprint, and just sort of gave up in the last, what, 20, 15, 20 meters, something like that. The other thing that, that, I, that I noticed in that sprint is he looked like he was kind of undergeared. And I wonder, you know, when you've got super, super shot legs like that, I wonder if he sort of spun that gear up got on top of it a little bit sooner than he expected and you know started cramping or something like that seems like a, a distinct possibility uh because his the slow-mo of that is really stark where you've got Askreen on one side who's pretty smooth in his sprinting style you know bike going back and forth yes but pretty smooth and then on the other side is Vanderpoel just like whipping the bike around which is kind of a classic you know you're under geared you're uh your, your sort of cadence is too high to stay smooth kind of thing so I wonder if that kind of hurt him in the end, but I think it, it really it was just it came down to at the end of a race like that, it's not a traditional sprint because, yeah, at, at 50K in or 100K in or 150K in, Vanderpool wins that sprint going away easily, right? Every single time, it, literally 10 out of 10. Uh, but at 254 kilometers after the end of whatever it was, six, six and a half hours of racing, then that changes things. Uh, it really it dramatically changes the way that that you know, each rider is going to approach it. As Green said, I, I decided to trust my sprint. It was a conscious move on his part not to attack at 2K to go or 1K to go, which I think is, like you said, Dane, what we're all expecting. And, you know, I think he just knew that he was a bit fresher and that at the end of a race like that, freshness counts for more than, you know, your ratio of fast twitch to slow twitch muscle fibers, which is generally what's going to decide it uh, in a shorter event. I think there's, there's also... Something to be said for the way that uh, being a member of the Quickstep team, and this is true for this has been true for years, has kind of um, it's hid how talented some riders are at times. I think this was true for Nicky Terpstra a few years ago. Uh, since then, he's had injuries. He's he's a lot older now. I don't think he's you know the same level he was. But when he was on that team, I feel like he was sort of seen as a, a cog in the Quickstep machine. And sometimes he he would get these wins, and people just kind of wrote him off like, oh yeah, Terpstra getting the win because he's he's the Quickstep rider. Uh, and I think that was a little bit unfair to him. And I also think with Asgreen, we have a similar situation where over the course of this year, we've seen Asgreen look really good, uh, but he's one of the quick step riders. So you feel like, well, any one of them could do something. And, and it does really feel like that. It feels like any quick step rider on any given day can pull off this big result. And that, I think, kind of downplays how talented some of them are individually. And with Casper with Asgreen, the, he's not a rider who came out of nowhere. He is a really talented guy who we've seen kind of growing gradually and getting better and better. Uh, I remember watching him at Tour California a few years ago when he came out, and he was just, I mean, he's a powerhouse. And he has been really strong for the last year and a half in the Classics. We saw him take a Classics win a week and a half ago. But because Julian Alaphilippe was the sort of option 1A in everyone's mind for Quick Step, I don't want to say people wrote As Green off, but it was sort of, 
we just don't think about him in the same breath as we maybe think about some of these other contenders. And I do think being a part of Quickstep is huge. I mean, it's it makes a big difference if you have the Quickstep team around you. You are so much more likely to have success when Alaphilippe is putting in these attacks from farther out, which he did, by the way, in this race, uh, and, and putting pressure on your rivals. But at the same time, I also think it sort of hides just how good Asgreen as an individual, as a talented rider is. I think he's got a pretty good sprint, and we never really see it because there's like three guys on Quickstep who are faster than him. Uh, he's got a lot of power. We see that all the time. But we, we know that there are going to be times when he's going to be putting in attacks just for tactical reasons and not for his own, you know, results. So long story short, I think Casper Askins is actually really quite good. And I, just, I want to make sure people don't, uh, you know, two years from now think about this as another quick step win. And they realize this is an Asgreen win, just like when Nicky Terpstra won uh, Roubaix and he won Flanders. You know, he was, that was, that was Nicky Terpstra who did that. Sure, he had help having Tom Bonin on the team or having other guys on the team. But, I mean, these are, these are talented riders that Quickstep has a whole lot of. And sometimes we kind of forget that, I think. I mean, part of the reason why he won that sprint is because, you know, rolling turns over the last 15K, anybody who's, who's, who's rolled turns with somebody who's just a little bit stronger than them will know this feeling where you're trying to hold the pace of the other person. This is Vanderpool trying to hold the pace of Asgreen. You're trying to hold the pace of the other person, and it's just slowly, slowly, slowly eating away at you basically and you could see that in the sprint finish you could see that Asgreen had just been though the turns looked roughly equal for those last 15k he had been less on the limit than Vanderpool that's the only way that he wins that sprint so yeah super super ride super talent for sure uh really the most important thing though is that he did it on clinchers mm. uh I think without that you know you definitely would have lost we'll get to that in a little bit <laughs> before we do should we talk uh, controversies a little bit, maybe? Flanders controversies? Yeah, how about it? We, let's go in chronological order. I think the second one will be the, more, the one we'll talk about more. The first one was a little... I mean, there's not a whole lot to talk about. Uh, two riders were tossed out of the race for... I called it a scuffle in my headline. I couldn't really... I, I didn't want to call it a fight. It was like a brake check. Yeah, it was like, you know, if you wanted to hurt someone with your bicycle, that's what it would look like. Well, so there was, I don't, I don't think the brake check was intentional itself, but then, so, okay, so basically, Yevgeny Fedorov and Otto Vergarda were riding at the front of the pack in the early goings. We're talking like 20 minutes into the race. This was very, it was a pretty early time to get tossed out of a race. Uh, Fedorov <laughs> is at the front, and I think he tried to get clear and didn't, and then he slowed down a little bit. He brake checked maybe in frustration. It was unclear why he brake checked. I don't think it was, I don't think he was trying to hurt anybody with the brake check, but I don't, I don't know. Um, and Vergarda was right behind him and he was very displeased uh, that Fedorov had just hit the brakes right in front of him. He didn't crash. Uh, Vergarda didn't crash. Uh, but that meant that he was still upright to, to take out his frustration on poor Evgeny Fedorov. So he, uh, Vergarda rode up alongside Fedorov and uh, he elbowed him pretty hard. He, or shouldered him. He threw his body weight into him and uh, it was pretty egregious. Uh, and it was at the front of the pack, so I, I don't know if Vergara had like, I mean, did he, did he think the people were going to see this? It, it's, it, was, it was very obvious. Uh, and Fedorov did not fall off, he managed to stay upright, and uh, two or three seconds later he tried to respond by swerving in Vergara's direction, uh, which he did not make contact, but there was clear intent to, to do something there. So within about half an hour, both riders were tossed out of the race. So, certainly controversy, but... I, I don't know. Is it that controversial? They got tossed out of the race. They did something dumb that, you know. No, yeah, I think I, I don't think anyone's defending them. Uh, yeah. I mean, that first action was just sort of like really bad form. Yeah. You know, you just you don't slow down suddenly at the front of a group of 180 riders or whatever, whatever the Tour of Flanders Peloton is. That's just it's just not done. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would also be pissed. I'm not sure that I, I, I don't know. Maybe I would have thrown an elbow. Maybe maybe I would have been disqualified if someone did that to me in the front of, <laughs> the front of a Flanders peloton. You know, it's a heated moment. 20K into the Tour of Flanders. Let's move on to the more controversial. Yes, surprisingly, those are not the only two riders disqualified from the Tour of Flanders. I, I wrote the story and, and like I, it was it was sort of like, a, wait, really? Did another person just? OK, sure. Uh, so. <laughs> This was about, a, this was a couple hours later in the race. Uh, Mickey Shar was off the back. He had had a mechanical. He was working his way back up to the group that he had been in before his mechanical. And uh, he discarded one of his bottles to a group of roadside spectators uh, in, a, in a manner that, if you've watched a bike race, you've seen a thousand times before. And then moments after discarding the bottle, uh, if, you, if you're watching, you could see he just had this moment of realization and it was really depressing. Uh, he was like, oh no, what have I just done? 
And the reason that he did that, of course, is that uh, three days prior to the race, the UCI's new rules on bottle discarding went into effect. You are not allowed to get rid of your bottles in a non-designated zone, and that is exactly what Michael Shard did. And so he worked his way back up to the pack and then got disqualified, uh, which was pretty uh, pretty shocking. I think I don't think people were really expecting uh, that to happen. I think people probably saw other bottles get discarded over the course of the day with without kind of uh, any kind of consequences. But Michael Shaw was tossed out of the race for getting rid of his bottle in a non-designated zone for littering. Uh, there were fans there, like I said. Of course. You don't want to want to be throwing a, a water bottle at fans in, in these times, I think. That's part of it. Um, but yeah, Char, out of the race. And then there was a lot of frustration, I think, from, from riders over this happening. Uh, even though, again, this was this is in the rules. It's a pretty clear application. The rules are not, um, you know, they, they make it pretty clear. If you throw away your bottle in a place that you're not supposed to, you're going to get penalized. And in a one-day race, the penalty, it, it includes getting tossed, which I think it's kind of crazy that that is the the amount of the penalty, but it is what it says. And it has said that now for almost two months in the rules. Yeah. I mean, I still, you know, so I think Shar is in his 18th season as a pro or something like that. 17th season as a pro. He's been doing the exact same thing for years and years and years and years. And I can see how you would just sort of forget, right? Because the, so that the rule says it's rule 2.2.025. Riders may not. And it used to say without due care, which gave some leeway, but that part has been removed. So it used to say without due care. Now it just says riders may not jettison food, bunk bags, feeding bottles, clothes, etc., outside of the litter zones provided by the organizer. As you say, it's a very straightforward rule. And the removal of that without due care phrase, uh, basically, you know, it means that you can't do it anywhere except for those specific areas. Before, if you did it with care, in theory, you could kind of get away with it, right? Now, riders, as you say, have responded to this. Uh, there's been a bunch of posts on Instagram over the last couple of days, including from Mickey Shar and Alex Dowsett and a bunch of others. It basically says giving bottles out is part of pro cycling. And it's, you know, they're telling stories about Mickey Shar told a story about you know, his family taking him to the Tour de France, to the Jura Mountains in 1997. And he was on the side of the road and he got a bottle from one of the teams. I think it was a Pulte or something like that. Uh, Got a bottle from one of the teams that he still remembers being kind of a moment that set him on the trajectory of, to where he is right now, which is a, you know, dec almost decades long professional career. Uh, underneath that, underneath that Instagram post is a pile of supportive comments. Uh, Chris Froome says, what is our sport coming to? <laughs> For example, uh, Alex Dowsett posted his own version of that, which was uh, giving a bottle to a little boy who then became uh, sort of an ambassador for his hemophilia uh, foundation and his little bleeders foundation. Um, lots of sort of anecdotal stories about how this one small act, which is very, I think very much part of pro cycling at this point, as you say, anybody who watches races has seen this a thousand times. Riders themselves have probably done this a thousand times. Uh, this one very small act, uh, you know, can, can have sort of dramatic effects on people down the road, on, on families and kids and, and, it is, I think, in my opinion here, important to separate that from, you know, chucking gel wrappers into fields all the time, right? Which was kind of the original reason why these rules were put in place, because, you know, if anybody who's ridden around, I've ridden the Tour of Flanders route on the Monday after the Tour of Flanders, uh, and there's just gel goo wrappers all over the place and, and you know, bar wrappers and little bits of tinfoil because now they all use, you know, rice cakes and things like that. There's just trash all over the place. Some of it is from the fans and a lot of it is from the riders. And that's what they were trying to eliminate. I think the bottle rule just doesn't make any sense. I understand it from a, okay, you don't want to throw a full bottle at a fan and hurt them. And these days you probably want to sanitize that bottle when you get it right. Because we're in the Rona times, but I don't see, I don't see how this is litter basically. Sorry, I would have thought you would want it to sanitize that pulty bottle back in 1997 <laughs> that he would have caught. <laughs> you probably did. You probably would. Absolutely. Yeah, Kelly, I, I would agree with you here because I think the, the, the spirit of the rule and how it was originally put in place is, I feel like, very different from how it was enforced in this particular instance. And I think it's a really good example of how 
Uh, you can take a, a well intention, a good intention, and basically just mess it up to the point where it just like completely discards the intention. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, I just think they need to put the without due care back into the rule, right? Because that just gives the the jury the freedom to say, you know, he just handed a water bottle or or lightly chucked a water bottle off to a group of fans at their feet in a very safe way. That's not worth a disqualification. This other rider, you know took one and chucked it in an empty field or or took a a, a a wrapper of something and just dropped it on the ground as he was riding past that could maybe still be worth a disqualification if they want to take littering this seriously i think that that's that's valid but yeah to 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 take away the ability of riders to to chuck these bottles i mean anybody who's ever been to a big bike race has seen this has appreciated it has seen the people around you get super excited about chasing bottles down I mean, like the, the it's it's the equivalent in cycling for our American listeners out there of like sitting in a baseball field and catching a home run. Right. Like you get a piece of the actual sport to take home with you. It's really cool. And I think that the uh, taking that away is is a real shame. It doesn't make any sense to me. I and then penalizing a rider for it is even worse. <laughs> I, I fully agree. I, I don't think that the rule as it is written right now is uh, is good. I think they need to change it. And I think the. The effects of tossing bottles to uh, people on a, on a course that is generally uh, pretty well lined with fans most of the time, uh, it, I think that's usually okay. And the problem here, I, I want to defend the UCI actually on this one what? because I know uh, this, this rule has been written and, and clearly worded and, and published for a long time. And I think the, the frustration that the riders have uh, on the day after this incident is a little bit misdirected. I think fans are going to see all this stuff. They're going to say, oh, UCI, once again, doing stupid things. And I think they the, are. The, doing the, the things. frustration should be directed at uh, the, the, the writer representatives who were at the meetings to, to talk. There were only, I think, two. I think it was Philippe Gilbert and Matteo Trentin. Uh, but the, the people who came up with this rule should maybe get some of their frustration. And then the, the people who didn't do anything for the last month and a half. This has been on the books. So the UCI actually wrote a pretty clearly worded rule for maybe the first time in its entire history if you look at their <laughs> rules they are not very clear they have a clear rule and if people don't agree with it and i don't either i don't think it's a good rule but there was time to say something there was time to do something and and here we are somebody got kicked out of a bike race for for breaking this admittedly this dumb rule but the time to maybe do something about this was a little while ago and then maybe he wouldn't have gotten kicked out of the race so i i don't i don't think it's a good rule but i also think that if we're going to have rules and they're actually clearly written we should try to Fix them before this this happens. Okay, I mean, there there you do have a point that the rule was clearly written. I will also say that the rule was modified at some point as well. So even though it was clearly written, it's maybe not entirely clear how. I mean, Mickey Shaw clearly understood the ramifications of what he did just based on his reactions. That's that's absolutely true. And as you said, the rule as it is right now is clearly written. And the UCI did enforce one of its own rules in a way that they actually said that they would. So in, in that sense, in that kind of black and white sense, then everything happened the way it should have. But it, it's still a, it's still a, a dumb rule. I mean, I agree. Like if, if the you, UCI still made it to begin with. Yeah, I mean, if you <laughs> if you if you have a rider who you know, let's say you have a rider who like you know had one of these rice cakes or something and had a, a foil wrapper, and let's say they like tried to put it in their back pocket and they didn't realize that they missed or something and they just dropped it by accident. Like, does that warrant a disqualification? I mean, they were. Yes, it does. Well, At the Indurain, GP Indurain, one of the rally riders was disqualified for accidentally dropping a full gel. So, I mean, it, like for that sort of thing, it just seems so it just seems so dumb. Like if the UCI really wanted to address this topic of kind of environmentalism and littering and garbage and whatever, maybe you should get rid of like the 500 cars that are following the riders around, <laughs> you know, in every race. Like, do you need all of them? If you want to go but, super eco-friendly, like you, maybe you have the riders carry their own patch kits, for example. Like, you know, like, I mean, and like a third of them are just VIP cars that aren't actually doing anything. It's ridiculous. It's and yeah. like, you know, like you have this whole caravan, like Ian wrote an, an entire article about this a while ago about how you know, the caravan ahead of the Tour de France, just like chucking out stuff to everybody. It's just like, you know, literally handing, handing out just all sorts of garbage, which granted, almost all that stuff gets picked up and fought over. But still, like, if, if you want to address this, this particular topic, there are so many other ways to look at it than tossing a rider out of the race because he was basically trying to hand off a rider, a, a bottle to a fan. I think that, that part of it right there is also the other huge problem with the rule. I think you can have, even if you want a rule about this, which, you know, maybe there is a good reason to have it, kicking a guy out of a race 
I mean, that's that's egregious. Like, you, you kicked two guys out of the race earlier in this race because they tried to fight each other and they could have caused serious harm to people. And then Shark gets kicked out of the race for trying to throw a bottle to fans. I feel like you, even if you have the rule, maybe you could just dock somebody some UCI points or find them some Swiss francs. That seems a little bit more reasonable as, in terms of the actual writing of the rule. That could be the first thing that they do. Just don't, don't kick somebody out of the race. Yeah, they love finding Swiss francs. That's like their favorite thing to do. They find Swiss francs for all sorts of things, like, you know, going pee in the wrong spot. And all, like, there's a million different, we, we, at the end of every single stage of the Tour de France, there's like a whole big list that shows up of who got fined for what. And this seems like a perfect opportunity for that. I think what really gets people about this, and I, and I you know, I don't, I don't like dunking on the UCI like week after week on but this podcast. But they make it but so I, easy. They make it so easy. And then, you know, we were just talking about the fact that that we're still waiting for a decision on Mark Bracca, who was abusing riders. And if Flanders Classics hadn't done anything about it, is still allowed at bike races. And we're comparing that with the UCI chucking a, a well-intentioned rider out of one of the biggest races of the entire year for throwing a water bottle. It's it's this, you know. Our commenters love to sort of bring up like the sock height rules and things like that. It's just this insane disparity in what they should be paying attention to and what they should be focused on. And it feels like that they're just paying attention and focusing on these stupid little things as opposed to the things that actually matter. And that's what we want from a governing body is paying attention to the things that actually matter and making changes to the things that actually matter, not doing this little tiny rules and regulations nonsense. Anyway, we don't need to we don't need to stay on this for too long because I think everyone agrees. Basically, <laughs> the, I, we, we, there was one guy tweeting at us this morning that that he agreed with this rule that, you know, throwing bottles, period, should be wrong. But I think he may be the only one. I think he's just out there all alone. He's, so admittedly, his Twitter handle was at David Lepartian, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> just jumping back to what James said as well, what? It just brought back memories of, uh, I think it was last year's Tour de France, where the ASO were banging on big style in press releases that they had like maybe two electric cars in the whole fleet of ASO vehicles. And they said, oh, well, we would have more, but Skoda, who sponsored them, haven't got a car at the moment that will allow us to use a car for the duration of the 200, 250-kilometre stage race, which I think's probably cobblers because there's plenty of good cars out there they could use, e-cars. So, yeah, if you're talking about uh, ecological stuff, it's it just seems pitiful what the UCI are picking on. Agreed. All right, let's move on from that. Dane, you chatted with Mike Woods, I think, just this morning, right? It was a few days ago. Talked to Mike Woods. A few days ago. Yeah. Story went up this morning. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, so looking ahead for what's ahead, first of all, there's no Paris Roubaix next weekend, and I don't think we've had a podcast since uh, since that news came down. Oh yeah, so that's a bit of a bit of a letdown. Uh, but hopefully, we'll get to see that later in the year. They they've split the men's and the women's races onto two different days uh, in October. And quite excitingly, it's a week away from the World Championships in Flanders. So essentially, we're getting a Flanders Roubaix week uh, just in October. Yeah, it's like a- we get two Flanders this year, and yeah, our sort of new Holy Week. Uh, as we call it, I personally, provided that things are slightly more normal at that point, that we can travel and everything like that, I very much plan to be there because that sounds like a super fun week of bike racing. Yeah, uh, should be good. And hopefully things will continue. They will actually get a race because, of course, they did reschedule last year and then it didn't happen. But yeah, no no Roubaix this next weekend. So the Cobble Classics really winding down now. I guess we still have Scala Price. But uh, what that means, though, a lot of the eyes of the racing world turning to toward the Basque country. It's Sulia Basque country now, I think is the official name. And I caught up with Mike Woods, who is racing there this week, uh, the other day. Woods had a really nice start to his season. He's, of course, riding for a new team this year. Headed over to Israel Startup Nation over the offseason. And uh, it did not take him very long to show that he's pretty comfortable in his new team. It took him uh, two days of racing. He won, uh, he won his second, second day of racing at the Tour des Alpes Maritimes at Duvar. And uh, yeah, now he's in the Basque Country. So I caught up with him to talk about what's going on this year. And, and uh, yeah, so maybe we can just hear a little bit of that. And uh, you can check out more over at the website, obviously. Um, all right, so now you've been a pro for, you said, six years. What do you feel like you've learned? What, what are the big things that you've learned uh, since, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago? 
uh, as you continued your career? Um, I could write a book. I mean, <laughs> there's so there's there's like this relative knowing what like relative to what I knew when I started, uh, even as pro to now, there, there's a massive difference. Uh, every year you just like you learn, especially coming into the pro pro ranks relative to the amateur ranks. There's just so much. It, it, you learn so much more because you're racing so much more. And uh, I even, that's one thing that's exciting to me now is I still feel like there's room for me to grow and learn in this sport. But uh, I have a lot more perspective and confidence now. And that that's just brought on from experience. Um, just being in uh, and doing 60 plus race days each year, uh, crewing just a range of experience and realizing that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to fall apart in this race or that race. And you only get that through from racing so much. Do you feel like you've improved, uh, physically in certain ways since one or two years ago? Uh, I know that you're kind of at, at the, at the point now where I think a, a lot of riders would, uh, be wondering whether they're still improving. And I'm kind of curious if that's, if that's you or if you are still kind of making gains physically, cause you did make it kind of into cycling a little bit later than most. Yeah, I, I have been improved physically. My numbers have been going up every year. And, you know, you, you start thinking, especially I'm turning 35 this year. Okay. When's it going to end? But, uh, I was telling my wife yesterday, like I, I feel the strongest I've ever felt in the bike and I feel like I'm improving. So it's, it's a really nice, it's really nice. It's really nice to be doing something at my age. Uh, that that I feel like I'm not just improving mentally uh, um, and skills wise, but also strength wise. Yeah. Uh, so for this season, you've got you're doing two of the Arden, right? You're doing Flesh and Liege, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and then it's sort of just building up to the tour. Is that the big goal? Yeah, big goal for me this year is the Olympics. That's like kind of a big X on the calendar. Got it. Uh, everything else is going to be secondary to that, but. Uh, the tour, the classics are those secondary big goals, but it's all like all in for the Olympics for me. So, what's uh, is it the fact that the course just kind of suits the punchy riders uh, for the Olympics? Is that what's really drawing you there? Yeah, it's a one. I, I always like one day races. Uh, it's a lot of climbing miles, and uh, yeah, it's the Olympics. I mean, for as a Canadian, as a as a guy coming from a track background, the Olympics are kind of the be all end all, and. Uh, uh, I hold them in higher esteem than most cyclists, uh, particularly because I'm a proud Canadian. And um, yeah, I just I really want to represent Canada well there. Yeah. So that was Mike Woods. Uh, like I said, you can see more from him over at CyclingTips.com. It's a good website, and you can also watch him this week, along with a lot of other big names at the Basque Country. It's quite a start list. Uh, the, the first stage of the time trial, and Primoz Roglic spent about three hours in the hot seat before. Taking the opening TT, uh, you got Tadej Pogacar over there, Mikel Landa, uh, Esteban Chavez coming off a nice race, Alejandro Valverde, plenty of big names, so it should be a good race, uh, good week-long stage race over in the Basque Country, already off to a good start. My favorite Mike Woods fact is that he is the only human being in history to run a sub-four-minute mile and finish a Tour de France. And he's running more now, which is pretty cool, uh, incorporating running yeah. into his training, so... Good Mike Woods fact. I don't have any other Mike Woods facts other than he's Canadian, probably played hockey at some point, rides a bear in his free time. Mm. I'm just making a bunch of Canadian stereotypes for Abby over here. She's just glaring They're at me. Right. <laughs> They're all right. They're all right. Has three pet moose, calls them meese. All right, we'll move on. <laughs> I, have cor- I have a corrections corner if you want to hear it. Oh, really? Let's hear a corrections corner. So... Alejandro Valverde won Liege, Bastogne, Liege, and Flesh Wallone in 2017 and 2015. However, those are not cobbled classics; those are Ardennes classics. So I yes. believe that my statement is true. Yeah, they won. They've won plenty of monuments, but they just yeah. cobbled classics. Yeah. So is yeah. that more of a that, that wasn't so much of a corrections corner so much as a confirmation affirmation? Corner. Yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I also forgot to mention that this is a little after the fact, but I do think it is. I I should mention it is that. Annemiek van Vluten won the Tour of Flanders in 2011. And so the, she won it again 10 years later and hasn't won it, obviously, since. So it was a really, really big deal for her, that win. I should have mentioned it earlier, but I will add it to this confirmation corner. Now we can move on. Before we move on to Nerd Nuggets, leave racing behind. 
This episode is also supported by DT Swiss, makers of high-performance cycling components with headquarters in Switzerland and a production team in Grand Junction, Colorado, not too far from here. DT Swiss provides a competitive edge to every ambitious cyclist. They work with top aerodynamic specialists to produce speed without compromising handling, stiffness, or braking performance. That aerodynamic specialist is Swiss Side, and they paired with Swiss Side to create an advanced aero wheelset for top speed and safe handling. Find out more about all they have to offer at dtswiss.com. Thank you to DT Swiss for sponsoring today's episode. And with that, it's time for Nerd Nuggets, and we're going to say goodbye to Dane Cash and Abby Mickey because, I don't know, they're not big enough nerds. Get out of here, non-nerds. <laughs> it's like the first time anybody's ever said anything like that to me. So I'll take, it. I'll take it this this one time. Get out of here, cool kids. Yeah, okay, there oh. your cool kid stuff. Sure. <laughs> See ya. Go play some football. Dane and I are the only two in this group that play Dungeons and Dragons. I'd just like to add. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. So in this week's Nerd Nuggets, we're talking about another first for clincher tires, specifically clincher tires with tubes in them do we know it's a what? first is it an actual first mm, we we'll get to that <laughs> maybe anyway james what are we talking about uh well seeing as how this is flanders week here uh we we're talking about casper asgreen's specialized tarmac that he won uh that he won flanders on just like, just yesterday uh and point being the big deal about uh the tires on this bike are that yes they are clincher tires they are uh specialized 28 millimeter wide hell of the north uh cotton clinchers with latex tubes inside and that's a big deal because these races are have historically been won on tubulars for the last well i mean pretty long time decades i think actually um and you know that's obviously collecting a lot of news headlines at the moment I don't know. I'm actually, I'm pretty sure it's not necessarily the first time Flanders has been won on clinchers. Uh, I believe there were at least one or two other times in the 90s, I believe. Uh, so it's not necessarily first, but the fact that is that it, that is that we have a modern incarnation of the race that has been won on clinchers says a lot about sort of how far the technology has progressed and where teams are looking now to gain some, basically some free speed. Do we think we're going to see more of this? I think that's the big question for me, because as you say, it's, it's been, I mean, tubulars have owned professional racing for a very long time, with the exception of a couple races. I mean, uh, was it Claudio Chiapucci won a Tour de France stage and some other things in like 1992 on Michelin highlights. Uh, there's rumor that uh, the 97 edition of Paris-Roubaix was won on clinchers uh, by Guedon. But I actually haven't seen that confirmed anywhere. I've just seen it sort of like thrown around on the internet and I have not been able to find a good photo to confirm that. But nonetheless, those are, they're not, it's not common. We'll put it that way. And uh, it hasn't been for a very long time. And it hasn't been for a very, very long time. And the reasons behind that, just to reiterate real quick, is basically because tubulars, if you're flat, you can keep riding. And that means that if you're a professional, you get a flat, you see this all the time in races, the, the rider just keeps going, waits for a team car. You lose less time overall. Plus, if you blow out a tire on a descent or something like that, it's not just going to fall off and you have a slightly better chance of keeping yourself upright. And the big thing is with tubulars, you're a lot less, you're a lot less likely to pinch flat, uh, which, has, which is historically the big concern in Cobble the Classics. Um, right. I mean, one thing I should point out, however, is, uh, I mean, w we are talking about Flanders as a Cobble Classic, and it is. Um, but it is really important to point out that the cobbles at Flanders are, and we've talked about this before, but the cobbles at Flanders are night and day difference between what you see at Roubaix. And Roubaix, it's like riding across a bunch of cinder blocks that were dropped in the middle of a field somewhere. And, Flan and Flanders is more like, I don't know, like kind of like bowling ball-ish, beach ball-ish kind of stones sort of thing. The rocks are smaller and they're closer together is basically, yeah, and it's much, much, much easier to ride. And like, you know, there aren't as big, like the holes aren't as big that you fall in and like, you know, the edges aren't quite as sharp, that sort of thing. So it's the sort of race where if you are going to do a cobbled classic on clinchers, then that's a good one to do it at because I think all three of us have done that sportif before. My guess is that all three of us have done them before on clinchers and we're still here. I, I didn't get flat. Um, uh, 
Uh, and I don't, we don't know what kind of pressures Casper Asgreen was running in those tires. Um, I mean, our guess is that he was running fairly close to what he would have been riding in years past. Um, also important to note that while Flanders is full of cobbles, it's not all cobbles. It's not like it's cobbles from start to finish. It's mostly decent paved roads uh, and then with a bunch of cobbled sections. So, um, yeah, it's it, th this win on clinchers is is notable, but not it, it'll be much, much more newsworthy if, you know, if Quickstep or somebody else, Decoining Quickstep, excuse me, um, it'd be much more notable if someone on that team or some specialized rider in general won on clinchers at Roubaix than at Flanders. Should we talk about sort of how this came to be, why they are running clinchers? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a, I'm not going to say a complicated story, but basically Roval, who makes the wheels, and James, correct me if I get any of these bits wrong here. Roval, who makes the wheels, uh, they came out with a, with a new, both a deep wheel and a shallow wheel. So the deep wheel, which is the one that's right behind me here, is called the Rapide CLX, and there's a shallower one called the Alpinist CLX. And both, even though they look like they would take a tubeless tire, they have the shelf and everything. It's what we would normally see from a tubeless tire. They are apparently not tubeless compatible. And we've been kind of confused by this since they came out. And as a result, the team doesn't really have any choice. They don't make a, a tubular version anymore. And they're not tubeless compatible. And so they've been kind of forced into a traditional clincher with a tube in it, which is, as we said, basically what most amateurs are riding around on, right? Did, did I get that right? Is that, is that spot on? I would say that's pretty accurate. And when, when you say that we're confused by this, it's more like it just feels like there's more to this story than we really know. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the, these wheels, when they came out, they, they certainly look tubeless compatible. And, uh, and actually, I've, I've gotten messages from uh, you know, one or two readers that point to now outdated product pages that were on some sort of regional specialized website that stated that they were tubeless compatible. So that had obviously so been they were corrected. at some point. <laughs> Seemingly. Um, but anyway, they are not officially tubeless compatible. So yes, I mean, the teams basically have no choice. I mean, they can run tubulars if they want to, but they would be doing so on old wheels that they know are slower. Um, so one thing that's nice about clinchers and the reason why there has been so much renewed focus on clinchers and tubeless clinchers uh, in general, as opposed to tubulars, despite the fact that they are heavier, we have a lot of data that shows that they roll quite a bit faster. Um, we did a deep dive episode with folks from the team and Raval uh, and Specialized, and supposedly, I think they said that they, there, there was like a 12 watt savings at race pace, I think, relative to their old tubulars, which is absolutely enormous. Now, that's a huge, huge number. Um, maybe not terribly significant to everyday riders like the three of us here, um, but if you are Casper Asgreen and you're fighting for the win at Flanders, 12 watts is a big number. Um, you got you got to wonder how happy the mechanics are as well, because gluing tubulars on isn't exactly the easiest job going, but the coin at quick step have got quite a few mechanics who have been around the block quite a long time. So they're going to be stuck in their ways and want to do well, the same thing time and time again. So you've got to wonder if they're, they're pleased with the technology as well. If they're trusting in the technology is um, that little bit more confident building now, now they've got that wind behind them. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know how confident they are behind the scenes, but I mean, when we did, you know, we did have a, a mechanic from the team on that podcast episode and if only just based on what they were saying, I, my guess is that they're probably pretty happy about it because they had said that whereas before it would take, it would take the mechanics a week to glue all these tires. Now they can do everything in a day. So, I mean, That's it's nicer. a, it's a huge time savings. I mean, if you, if you, I mean, a, a team would typically have, you know, maybe three mechanics working on this, on any sort of, any sort of job kind of thing. And let's just say it was three and let's just say those three mechanics now saved let's just say four or five days each. I mean, that's 12, 15 days that they now have to spend on other things. Like, I don't know, probably fishing hydraulic hoses and wires through an internally router frame, <laughs> which they probably need that time for. <laughs> yeah. Bikes themselves have gotten more difficult. So it all, it all probably evens out in the end. Why do you think it's taken so long to come to this point in where the technology, they're comfortable to use this technology? Because I remember Domo Farm Fritz using I think it was the Michelin Pro Race at the Tour de France and really pushing to use them. 
yeah, back in, that's got to be early 2000s. And then it all fizzled out. All went back to tu- um, tubular. <laughs> and then obviously now back to where we are. The clinchers have gotten legitimately better in in recent years, and we have a lot more data. We have a lot more testing as far as rolling resistance and grip and all these other things go. And the reality is tubulars really haven't changed very much in really quite a long time. I mean, companies have gotten quite good at making them. Um, you know, like Continental, for example, I mean, they do a really good job of offering various teams custom formulations of you know, different treads and different reinforcements, different casing types and all this other things for, for tubulars. Like when you see at a race that, you know, you have, you know, a continental, you know, pro, I can't remember exactly what the nomenclature was, but you'll see like these pro three limited. Yeah, yeah. But you'll see little letters like, you know, ALX and like, you know, you'll see these little three letter designations for things. And, uh, I talked to continental continental. Uh, I talked to him about this a while ago and those three letters do designate different sort of custom, custom, you know, requests that different customers have for things, you know, for, for teams specifically. Um, but so anyway, I mean, but aside from that, tubulars really haven't changed a ton. Whereas with clinchers, there has been so much energy put into the development of not just the tires, but also the associated wheels. Like for these, for these Roval wheels, um, I mean, Kaylee, you, you've ridden them. I've ridden these, these, uh, those, those rapides, that front one in particular with that super, super fat external width. I mean, I, I, maybe this was in my head, but I mean, those, that wheel seemed just wicked fast. I mean, it it just seemed like it was definitely quicker and more efficient than some other ones that I've used. And it, it kind of goes along with this trend of going with a super wide wheel with a somewhat narrower tire, but only in this case, you know, I don't know how, how that 28 mil tire would really puff up in, you know, in, in an actual width because we weren't there. I, I can't, I can't measure them at the moment. Um, but my guess is that they were still quite a bit faster than the narrower tubular setup that they had before, even though the tubular setup would have been lighter, I think. Yeah. So we saw, so at the Tour de France last year, Julian Alaphilippe won the second stage on basically an identical setup here. Uh, not the hell of the North version of the turbo cotton, the regular turbo cotton, because there was no cobbles on the second stage of last year's Tour de France, but a very similar setup. He then switched back to tubulars for most of the rest of the race. And we basically heard that that was because you know, he had some GC ambitions. He was, uh, when you have GC ambitions, just sort of what I was talking about earlier, the ability to ride a flat, things like that. You might lose less time if you get a flat. That became more important than the X number of watts that they think they would save. But this year, we've seen these Rapide and Turbo Cotton combinations basically every single race from uh, Dakonic Quickstep and Bora Hansgrohe, who are both on the same setups. They haven't switch back to tubulars very often i've been sort of scrolling through the you know the photos that we get in and haven't spotted them anywhere as of yet uh i'm sure that they've at some point someone has ridden one this year but for the most part they're on these clinchers full time so do we think that this is a trend that's going to continue do we think that both clinchers with tubes in them which for a long time was you know it was a pariah in the professional peloton and tubeless which is showing up on some other teams at the moment uh, EF, for example, is running tubeless with those new little uh, foam inserts inside. Do we think that, you know, clinchers of some type, whether it's tubeless or tubed, are they going to fully take over in the next couple of years? I think they are. Um, and we, you know, I know um, Dave Rome wrote an article about this not too long ago uh, in a discussion with Josh Portner. Um, I actually have something in the works right now. I'm just waiting to hear back from a couple of companies. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say it right now. The tubulars are dead, at least as far as top tier road racing go. I mean, it, it's done because there are an increasing number of companies who are just no longer putting development resources into new tubular wheels. Um, and I think we'll still see them in cyclocross because tubeless tires just don't stay on a rim as well when there's just not very much pressure in them, uh, which is the case with cyclocross tires. But as far as on the road goes, uh, as far as that, as, as far as the road goes, Tubulars, we, we have, again, all this data, despite the fact that they are still lighter. So we might see them in climbing stages, perhaps. Um, but modern high-end clinchers, whether they be uh, tube type with latex tubes or, uh, or a really nice tubeless clincher, they have much less rolling resistance than a high-end tubular. So given the data, you are just not going to see a lot more development 
time put into tubulars. I mean, unless somehow, you know, tubular technology can advance to the point where the rolling resistance can match that of a, a latex tube clincher or a tubeless clincher, you're just not going to see it anymore. But I think right now, given the convenience factor, given the fact that with these tubeless tire bed shapes, we do now have less worry about a tire just instantly peeling off a rim if it goes flat um, with things like these, you know, foam inserts and stuff like that. Um, I have a hard time thinking that the trend is going to even plateau or reverse in the other direction. I do think we're going to see a lot more clinchers and tubeless. Sorry, tubeless. I do think we're going to see a lot more tube-type clinchers and tubeless clinchers moving forward and fewer tubulars. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I mean, it's, I still really, I still really like a good tubular. You know, it's the I, end I of an era. In a while, but yeah, it's the end of an era, and they do ride incredibly well. Um, there, there, there is something to that super round cross section and like you know a really nice cotton casing tubular tire. Um, but honestly, a, a, a cotton open tubular, um, otherwise known as like, you know, a cotton casing clincher with just the, with just the tread glued on instead of having a vulcanized tire. Um, but that sort of setup with a latex tube, it really doesn't feel that different and you don't have to glue it on the rim. So it's very true. Kind of hard to argue with that. I've ridden this exact setup that is behind me, the same setup that Casper Asgreen, uh, won on over the weekend and it's super nice. It feels really, really good. Feels I will say, basically like a tubular. So there you have it. The, uh, the old school among us might be a little bit sad about this, but uh, you know, progress marches on, I suppose. So we'll keep an eye out for where else clinchers take victories for the first time this year. Well, we don't actually know it's for the first time. We've decided, we, we've talked about this, but for the first time in a while. <laughs> as, as much as specialized marketing department would like to just run out and just scream to the world, this is the first time Flanders has, won, has been won on clinchers. That's not entirely true. Um, we don't think. Yeah. We're pretty sure. Uh, one other thing before we sign off, however, in the women's Tour of Flanders, I just want to point out, uh, this is kind of an interesting turn of events, because while clinchers are taking over from tubulars on the men's side, um, Annemiek van Vleuten, sh her shoes, uh, she was wearing some physique shoes when she won. Her shoes were, were fastened with Velcro, not with boa, not with a buckle. She was using Velcro shoes. So who knows? Maybe we'll see a return of Velcro now. And admittedly, I have, I have worn <laughs> several, several iterations of Physique's latest Velcro shoes, and they're quite good, actually. So we'll see. Tide might be turning in another direction in another, in another world. So interesting. What's, what's old is new again. Indeed. Right? Yep. Just think, pretty soon we're going to have you know, round steel tube lugged bikes again. Any day now, any day. We're back to the early 90s. Uh, saw someone the other day wandering around in Jinko jeans. So, you know, it's 1994 all over again, basically. <laughs> <laughs> back to the future. All right, guys, I think we've talked about this long enough. I think it's time to wrap up today's episode. Thanks to Continental and DT Swiss for sponsoring this week's episode. And we'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>